Thank you. Thanks, Carl, for leading us today. Let me play with you. Thanks, man. Yeah, that is a bad light, isn't it? If it's angled wrong, it sure is bad. Better? Thanks, Val. That would have been terrible to continue through the service like that. It's good to see you here today. My name's Tom. It's my privilege to share with you this morning. A little pop quiz for you. What is the best place on earth to watch the sunset? (laughs) Anywhere? I'm thinking there's better places and worse places. In your opinion, the best place to watch the sunset? Canyon. What's that? Canyon. Anyone want to say? (laughs) Well, we know it's not West Creston. Because the sun sets by like three in the afternoon over there, right? So we know that's out of bounds. But but the sunrise is awesome there. Thank you, John. That's right. How about the best place to watch a, an eagle soar? Be the best place. Open sky. Open sky. Down the lake. Have any of you ever been on one of those raptor counts they do on the coast? Have you heard about those? They, they, where they get together and they count like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bald eagles in a day. Can you? I'd love to be part of that. Wouldn't that be cool to be there and be, I don't know how they do the counts exactly, like do they hold up a frame or, I don't know, but they count them, hundreds and hundreds of these. Uh, what's the ideal location to watch a, a Shakespeare performance? Thank you, Barton the Beach in Vancouver. How many have been there? Awesome, awesome. Where else might be a great place to watch a Shakespeare? Stratford, Ontario, that's right. PCSS Auditorium has got to be the best place. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Tennille and I and the boys were, were visiting once in Halifax, and just moments before uh, it actually came on, we, we, we were looking through this, you know, things to do in, in Halifax, and we said, oh, there's a Shakespeare in the Park down at, what is it called, Point Pleasant Park? Is that it, Dan? Yeah. You lived there for years. Okay. So um, we decided... On a whim to stumble into this park, Point Pleasant Park, it was just dusk, and there was like 40 people there to see, uh, what was it, what was it, Tineo? All's Well That Ends Well, or something, one of those, anyway. Uh, no, it was Love's Lost, that one, that one, yeah. So uh, it was great, it was great. Can I just, this is like, I'm sorry, total side note. You're in, you're in Halifax, Nova Scotia for one day, and, and there's 40 people at this thing, and, and we run into people from our home church in Grand Prairie. How random was that? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, you'll walk into this place and say, hey, Tom. Oh, this is weird. One more. What's the best vantage point you could get for the International Space Station? International Space Station. Best vantage point. Hey, you could go there. Okay, well, other than that, I think you can like go online and watch the inner workings of the International Space Station. So there you go. You can even say Everything has a vantage point. That's the point of these opening questions. If you want to know and get to that really, uh, you know, that really great place, you've got to get where it's best seen. You've got to go to that place, that get that right angle, be in the space where it happens to see the right vantage point. We've been in this spring series where we've been exploring together what it means for us to be human images of God, and we've been trying to look at that from various vantage points. 
through these earliest stories of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, dipping into Genesis 3. We've been kind of turning it all over because we're convinced that this is really crucial information. What it means to be human is pretty important. It's a question. It's, it's something we need to explore. And, and if God has made us as human beings in his image, designed to reflect who he is to the world, well, really, when you think about it, there's not too many things more important to consider. And that's why I've been looking at it for this series. So the question this morning is, what is the best possible vantage point from which you and I can actually see who God is? Don't answer that. We're going to spend the whole morning. Just think about it. What is the best possible vantage point from which you can see who God really is? We've covered really important stuff so far in this series. We started off with worship and how we, as we... praise God, and as we sing to Him, and as we open up our lives to Him, we reflect back creation's praise, but we're also at the very same time reflecting who God is and His character and His nature to the world that He loves. Worship is incredible. We, we, we covered our responsibility to, to, to fill and to protect and to subdue and to, to serve and to be caring for God's creation, and we recognize that how we even do that, how we interact with God's world, reflects his care to the world, reflects his character to the world. We were challenged last week to look at the way that we think about our work and our rest, and even the rhythm of that work and rest, and how in the way that we work, in the way that we rest, in the way that we live our lives, it also reflects who God is to the world that he loves. All that stuff's amazing. All that stuff's important. But today, I believe we come to the most important way that we reflect who God is to the world he loves. I don't think there's anything more significant than this. And here it is. The best possible vantage point from which we can see who God is, is by looking at our relationships with other people. By looking at the way that we love, the way that we care, the way that we treat other people. That it's in that people see most clearly, who God is. Yes, worshiping him, of course, is important, and caring for creation is crucial, and participating in good work and holy rest is absolutely essential. But without love for other people, all that stuff, it just kind of fades into the background. All that stuff becomes, well, less than. Love outweighs everything else, period. And so, really, today, we get to the heart of what it means for us to be human images of God. I want to pray for us, pray for me maybe, I need prayer, and then let's dive in. Jesus, I'm thankful that this morning we can explore more of what it means to be people, human beings, what it means for us to reflect you to the world that you love, in particular as we explore today, what it means for us to love one another, what it means for us to reflect your goodness and your character in the way that we treat and honor and uphold and serve each other in relationship. So I ask that you would take my words today and give me strength by your spirit and us as we hear that together we may grasp more fully who you've called us to, to be and what you've called us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. The first question we ask is, when, when we've been coming to being human images, is we first have to ask the question, well, who is God anyway? I mean, if we're reflecting him, that's kind of where it starts, right? Who is God anywhere? Well, here's the interesting thing. When God first decided to make humans, do you remember what he said? You know, in the first number of days, he's just out there and he's, he's speaking things into, into existence and it's all good. And then when he decides at the end of the sixth day to make humans, he says these words. He says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. 
As we highlighted on week two, God stated then, uh, immediately following that, that his purpose for these human images of him would be to care for the world that he created, to take this leadership role in his good creation. But, but God says, let us make human beings. Us. Us who? I mean, do you ever ask that question? Many Bible scholars have actually wrestled with this, and what they think is this. The us in the original story, it does represent, it's kind of murky, but it represents a, a kind of plurality, as in there's more present than just one solitary individual sitting around thinking up things to create. That God is actually with somebody else. Well, that's maybe obvious because he used the word us. But there's two options for what that means. The first option is that God is addressing, quote, the heavenly court. Other beings and you know, living creatures and elders, these beings of glory and majesty and power, kind of like the ones you see in, um, in the book of Revelation, the other, you know, the other end of the Bible. There's this scene in Revelation 4 and 5 where we see the throne room of God and it's spectacular and it's got all this color and lights and smoke and it's like a rock concert, kind of. And then there's a bunch of people around and there's, and there's beings and there's angels and they're praising God. It's just, there's a lot going on. And so the us, some scholars say, refers to God referencing this heavenly court. The second option, of course, is the Trinity. That whatever kind of heavenly court is there, when you take the whole big story of the Bible, it's not hard to see that the us, though it doesn't you know, pull it all apart and explain it, it refers ultimately to the Father, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. And that's where I land. Um, not that God wasn't addressing the heavenly court, but I think specifically that's where the scripture takes us. Why? Because I think there's just way too many scriptures in the Bible that, that point toward that. Uh, Maybe one of those most obvious ones is in one of the stories of Jesus, there's four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're at the start of the New Testament. In in the book of John, he opens up his story about Jesus by deliberately echoing the Genesis story that we've looked at. And this is how it starts. These are the first uh, three verses. Um, It says, in the beginning, same words as Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then, and then the chapter just goes on, and, and, and it's using the metaphor of the word, but it gets to the point, kind of down into the story, that this word that was with God and was God and everything was created through him is actually Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate son of God. Over in a little letter that Paul later, he wrote to some Christians in an ancient city, he, he said this about Jesus. He said, for In him, referring specifically to Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so what these scriptures, these are just two, but it's all over the place, point us to is that Jesus was actually present in creation, at creation. In fact, nothing would have been created without him. He's there, he's active, he's making it happen. But not just Jesus, not just the Son of God, also the Spirit was there. We're told right in the opening verses of Genesis that you know uh, the Spirit of God was hovering over these this formless and empty these dark, these dark waters. The Spirit of God is 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 present there. So if you're looking at it, you don't even have to actually you know make things up to see that there at creation, the Father is present, creating the world through His 
Word, the Son, Jesus, and the Spirit is hovering over it all. One great Psalm, uh, Psalm 33, 6 says this, and you can kind of see how the Word of God and the breath, which is the Spirit of God, same word, is, uh, you know, part of creation. It says, by the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of His mouth. And even there in the Psalms, you can, you can hear this echo of the us-ness of of God. So while it's not super explicit right at the very start, the story, I think, without question, points us toward this God who created the world, who created us in his image, is an us, and that us is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also makes sense, too, because we understand from the story, just as we read it, that we're not made in the image of angels or spirits or living creatures. We're actually made in the image of the God himself, the God who created the world. So what's the point? It is, it is a point. It is, it is important. God is in us, specifically. God is a triune community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that might be new language to you. The word triune just means three, three persons in one being. That might be new to you, and that might seem super theological. And if you're just exploring the Christian faith for the first time, or, or maybe you just stumbled in here and you're, you're kind of checking things out and you think, oh man, he just dropped a couple words that I'm going to have to go look up on my you know, phone. It's okay. I don't actually pull out those words very often. But what we want to understand is this is who God is, that God is a being with rich community, that God, who he is, the God who made everything we can see, who gave himself for us, who, who loves us, is actually in his essence, at the very core of who he is. He is a community of three persons who've existed eternally in this perfect relationship. And this is important to get. Because if it's at the core of who God is, and then he made us in his image, it has something to do with who we are. That as we understand that the very core of who God is, his very identity, that we find loving community there, that we find a divine friendship present in the Godhead, that, that we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in self-giving love, shared beauty as the Father delights in the Son and, and the Son leans into the Father and the Holy Spirit, as it were, dances among them all. This is important stuff, that God revealed himself hinted at it here in Genesis, but through the whole story, revealed himself as a God who is relationship. And he revealed the most fully in the coming of his son, Jesus, and the giving of the Holy Spirit and made it all clear. And it's what sets Christian, core Christian conviction apart from every other religious belief out there. When I say that, I'm not smacking on other religions. I'm telling you, this is the core difference. Every other religious or philosophical belief you can name, literally, you name it, whether we're talking about Islam or Mormonism, or we're talking about uh, you know, traditional or various forms of, of Jewish thought, Hinduism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name it, it's right here that the difference lies. That all other religious or philosophical expressions, they, they ultimately reject God's self-revelation that he is, at his divine core, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where it all comes down. You can look at a lot of, you know, I have lots of conversations with people uh, who, are, who are Muslim or, or, or maybe from different you know, versions of things. And you can talk about a whole bunch of different things that are believed. But all that stuff, most of that stuff is fluff. Most of that stuff doesn't really matter. This is where the core, the difference lies. Is what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think 
God is. And that's where the key difference lies. They accept God's self-revelation, that God has revealed himself and is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Guess what? They're Christian. You know, I mean, essentially, there's more to fill in, of course. Jesus rose from the dead. There's a few things. But, but you know, that's at the core. And if they say, well, I like Jesus. I think he's great. But, you know, he's just a, just a higher form human or whatever. Or he just, he, he just, you know, he was this or he was that. But he was not eternally existent with the Father in this beautiful relationship then they're not Christian. And that's not a smack on them. Great people, but this is an important distinction. This is at the core of who we are. It's at the core of how we understand God has revealed himself to us to be. But who God is, at his very core, is a relationship. And so, when he makes us in his image, man, I keep, oh, and I'm moving this. Okay? You don't want to see me fall, do you? Some of you do, I know. When he makes us in his image, he's making beings who are, by definition, relational. And that moves us on to the second part. We've got to ask that question. Who are we? When God created human beings, he said, it says after he decides, you know, let us make, he says, it says, uh, Genesis uh, one twenty seven says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And for a long time, theologians and philosophers who did believe that humans were created in the image of God would try to figure out, well, what does that mean? And you can actually trace this stuff. People who have nothing else to do with their lives have. You can actually trace this stuff down through history and, and, and try to understand how different people in different eras and different centuries have understood the image of God. And it often gets located in our rational faculties or, or, you know, they'll kind of figure out, like, well, if God's a trinity, then maybe we're a trinity. And then they attach to think Greek ideas like, well, we have body and soul and spirit. And they always go off the tracks with that one. So they're trying to figure out, if we're in the image of God, and this is who God is, then who are we? But the clue is right there in the story. Because the main thing we're told at this point, in fact, the only thing we're told at this point about the humans who are created in the image of God is that they're male and female. That's actually the only information we have at this point. It's about the fact that they're unique somehow from each other and yet created to be with each other. That somehow their diversity expresses who God is even as they are human beings. And this is where we have to make the connection that just as God is this diverse, unique community of three persons who are in this perfect relationship of oneness, humans who are made diverse, male and female, and the diversity extends from there, we are created to reflect God's true nature in our relationships with one another, the way that we emulate his community in our lives. And we need to make a special note here. We're going to get to marriage. But at this point, this isn't really marriage yet. It's not, it's not talking about that. Rather, this is a statement that human beings reflect who God is in their distinct, diverse, their, their sexuality, their individuality. As they relate to one another, they reflect who God is to the world. They are made in his image. And God made us to be like him so that we could enjoy the kind of relationship that he has enjoyed for eternity past and into the into the future 
So we'll come back to some of that. But before we do that, let's press into the second story in Genesis. And I know we've been going back to these stories for several weeks now. So we're, we've been tracking with us so far. Um, you know, you're getting to hear some of these stories kind of unfold. Over in Genesis 2, you might remember that it's kind of a different version of how God brought humans about. And in this case, God gets down, plays in the dirt, makes the shape of some guy, and then breathes into him, and he becomes a living soul. But different from the Genesis 1 story, in Genesis 2, he's a man, and it's not men and women at this point. He's just a man, and God steps back and looks at this guy and says, the famous words, something is not good here. Kind of strikes you as surprising because so far in the story, we've heard God declare quite a number of times how good it is. So something's not good. Well, hear it for yourself. I'll pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground... And you're kind of expecting him to then form another human, right? Well, we didn't do that. The Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. The man, at last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. What do we discover in this second creation story? We discover that humans were made for relationship with each other. That even in a garden, a perfect garden that God planted, there was something not quite right if there was no one to share it with. God, who is this relationship of three persons in community, creates human images who were designed, created to reflect that relationality with each other. And we hear in the story that we were actually made for these relationships all along. We were made that way, and life just isn't right without it. And we can step back, all of us, and say, yeah, we get that, right? That's true. Even when we've had difficulty in relationships, we know at the heart of the meaning of life is relationships. Every one of us. Even if we've really wrestled and we've been divorced multiple times and we've had a lot of struggles in our family life and there's been strife, and diff- we know that at the heart of the meaning of life is relationships, even when we struggled. It's right there at the core. It's what we were made for. In this Genesis story, we do witness sort of the, the first marriage where the man and the woman who were, cre- they were created and they were joined together by God. And, and even the writer of this story, he offers that little bit of commentary at the end. You know, this explains why, which you hear every once in a while, you kind of pay attention because he's making a little bit of a point to help you know, explain or, or, or try to help interpret the people, for the people who are reading the early um, people of God are reading this and they're trying to get and understand, oh, why do we do certain things? And he helps explain it. But I want to note a couple things about the story before we go on. I don't want to just glide over them. And so let me just very quickly go through. And maybe I'll raise something today that you want to explore further. And that's awesome. Um, but let me just uh, you know, throw out a few things. One, God sees a problem in his creation 
and women are the solution. Can I just say that out loud? Yeah. Ah, let's just think about that. Remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about Pandora and how Zeus decided to punish men by creating the first woman? Like she was a form of punishment? Yes, it's true. As far as Zeus was concerned. And look at this, eh? Isn't this awesome? I just want to pause for a moment and just reflect on the fact that God said something wasn't good and half of you were the solution to that. <sighs> we're thankful for you. Okay, so while... God can see what's missing in this story. The man can't. He's not aware that he is, quote-unquote, alone. So God shows him how alone he is by kind of parading all the animals in front of them. It must have taken weeks for him to name all of these, to kind of classify them, to actually do part of the role of you know, maybe subduing or ruling that, that humans were given, to, to start this, this role of, of actually you know, identifying, naming, classing, whatever, and he, he parades them all in front of them, I think that the man eventually begins to get an idea that I don't, there is no one around here like me. Right? There's nobody around here that looks like me. They all kind of, groups and kinds and me. It wasn't until maybe he realized he was alone that God then steps in to solve the problem. God makes a helper for this man. That's an important thing to distinguish because I know how the word helper is used in our common culture, right? What is a welder's helper? Oh, I was raised in northern Alberta. There were welder's helpers around. Were they the welder, folks? Did they have any idea what they were doing? No. Hold the end of the pipe, right? That's what a welder's helper is. You need a helper for a a, a project you're working on. What do you need? You need someone to come and hand you a tool, you know, to maybe offer you that second set of, legs or whatever. That's how we define helper. And so when you, maybe some of you are new to this story, heard the word helper this morning, you might have had an image in your mind that God was creating a little helper for Adam, a little helper for the man, right? That is not what's going on here. That is not what's going on in the Bible. The word helper is not a lower status. In fact, it's the word that's used through all the rest of scripture for guess who? God himself. All over the place, God is our helper. An example, I just pull out one, Psalm 54.4, but it's all over the place. It says, God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. That's the same word that's used. This is not a less than. This is not somebody to hold the wrench. This is the power person. This is the person who's desperately needed. The person without which the man would not only be deficient and alone, but likely in deep, deep trouble. This is a great, powerful word. And so we can kind of dispense with some of the ideas that have been imported into this through culture that that the, the, the woman is created as sort of a sidekick for the main deal, the guy. That is not what's going on here in the Bible. Instead, what we see is that God creates a woman from the man And they're brought together as equals, as beings who are of each other. And that's what the man recognizes when he sees the woman. He sees someone who's of his kind, someone who's equal to him. And then lastly, I want to point out the fact that they're naked, which for some of us may seem like a wonderful thing, and for others, a horrifying reality to consider. But it's not so much about their sexuality in spite of how maybe our culture takes us that way. It's really about their servanthood. 
You see, in the ancient world, nakedness was a sign of slavery. Nakedness was a sign of debasement. Nakedness was a sign that you were somebody else's property. And so if you went around naked, you were the lowest of the low of the low. What we hear in the very beginning here is that this relationship between the man and the woman was a relationship where there was mutual service without the shame, where they were able to give of themselves to each other, and there's no power, there's no hierarchy, there's no debasement, there's no, there's no putting down, but rather equal to each other, they're called into service both to each other and to the God who has created them. And you may not have ever heard the, the, the naked without shame thing like that before, but that's what it's pointing to. They could have figured out how to get the clothes off to have sex, you understand. So it wasn't that. It's that they were serving each other. Now, so, so much of this original story does help us understand marriage as God intended. That there is this holy relationship of mutual support that's been designed by God as something good and something beautiful. But I know we are all profoundly aware of how that is not the experience of many of us, either in past marriages or maybe in a current marriage. Many of us who've struggled through divorce, who've experienced abuse, even in the relationship that was meant to be protected, meant to be safe, who've experienced betrayal in the midst of that. Some of you who've experienced profound loneliness, both in marriage as well as outside of marriage. And I'm aware of that, even as we talk today, and acknowledge how painful this can be. How ugly it can be. And yet, when we hear the story, we recognize that even in the ugliness, even in the shame, even in the difficulty, it doesn't diminish God's original desire to see men and women, to see human beings flourishing in relationships where they're cared for, where they're not abused, where they're safe, where they're allowed to flourish and be all that they are called to be. And so let me talk for just a moment, make some practical points about how we reflect God even in our marriage relationships. They're pretty obvious, actually. Coming out of this early story, I think we can see that one of the key ways that we reflect who God is to the world he loves in marriage is the way that we honor one another, the way that we speak of one another, the way that we speak to each other. That when we reflect on God's character, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the way they love one another, the way they give to one another, we realize that in our marriages, it isn't about someone serving me. It isn't about me being the boss or, or them being the boss. It's not about that. Rather, it's about honoring one another so that in our, the very way that we relate to one another, we're reflecting the self-giving, sacrificing love of God. It's the way that we speak, the way that we think, the way that we serve. We seek the benefit of the other. Some of us, we know this, We've gone into relationships kind of hoping that they'd be the answer to my problems, right? That, that finally someone who will serve me. And I understand that. And of course we do receive service from each other. But we hear in this story and through the story of Scripture that God calls us together and for those who are married to serve one another, to lay down their life, to be for each other what God is for us. And we can do that. And as we do that in our marriages, as tough as that is, as we do that in our relationships with one another, is sometimes we need counseling to do that. Sometimes we need a lot. We got to get over a lot of stuff. So we got to make steps forward and, and healing and prayer. But as we do that more and more in our relationships with each other, particularly as I think about marriage today, we are reflecting who God is. More and more, we're pointing people 
to who God is and his ability to transform us. It's seen in our faithfulness to one another. The way that we're faithful to one another, yes, sexually. The way that we're faithful to one another in, in how we, we, we are always present for each other, serving one another, available to each other. Faithful with our minds, our hearts, our eyes. Faithful with our actions. And also, I think, in the way that we are thankful for one another. One of the things that really stands out in this early story when God first brought uh, the woman to the man is, I, he struck me as a little thankful. No? Anyone? <laughs> Thrilled, maybe? And sometimes I think we lose that, those of us who are married, we lose that sense of thrill and thanksgiving for who God has brought to us. There's lots of challenges in there. As the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit always give of themselves to each other, I think that in Christian marriage, we're able to give ourselves to each other as a reflection of that. And that even in the health or the, the growth, the healing, the forgiveness, the, the overcoming of selfish, petty difficulties, the overcoming of big, huge challenges, we are, even in the pursuit of health, pointing people to the God who loves us and desires us to have healthy relationships. But does that mean that it's only married people who are able to truly live all this stuff out, who are able to really accurately reflect the image of God? No, not at all. That is not true. Reflecting who God is in our relationships isn't dependent upon our marital status. And that is a relief for many of us, isn't it? In fact, when God said he didn't want man to be alone, he was thinking of more than just marriage. He was thinking about communities of people growing up. He was thinking about diverse, the diversity and the beauty and the uniqueness. And he was thinking about images of God living in right relationship with him and with his creation and with each other as they fill the earth as he commanded them to do. And ultimately, he was thinking of us. He was thinking of the church, his people, the people of God who were united by the Holy Spirit through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, into a community where we're no longer defined or, or we're no longer, you know, we no longer receive positions of better or worse based on whether we're male or female, whether we're of a certain ethnicity or, or a certain socioeconomic position. That, that's not true. And so that's why the Apostle Paul, numerous places, but one particular place, he says, that's why in Christ all are one. There's no longer, he lists them off, male or female, uh, Jew or Greek, which, you know, was the two main things how a Jewish person saw the ethnicity back then, or, or, or slave or free, you know, referring to the economic station of, of people. That's not true. That's not what defines the people of God anymore, not, not what defines their community, that rather we're called by the Spirit to love one another as God loves within his relationship. And our humanity then reflects God's divinity, God and who he is and the way that we love each other. And in particular, might I add, it really reflects him at those points where it really requires a sacrifice. We have to lay ourselves down for the other. I mean, isn't that at the very center of who God is? This perfect relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, decided they would send one of them, the Son, to come and be one of us so that we could actually be restored and brought into that community right at the very heart of who God is, is the sacrifice God made so that you and I could be restored to God's family. And so even very practically in our relationships, it's at that point of sacrificial action 
that we most clearly emulate the care and the love, the character of God. But let's talk about being single for a moment. Because the danger so far in even reading this is that people could think that it's only in a marriage relationship that we're able to really image God or be happy. And that's patently false. While marriage is blessed, so is singleness. And some of you, that might come as a bit of a surprise. You know, sex can be a blessing within marriage, but it shouldn't be elevated to the status that outranks all of their experiences. And often it's been a source of harm in, in people's lives. Marriage, sexual union, good gifts from God, we absolutely believe that. We're not of the clan of Christian thought that thinks sex is dirty and sex is bad. That is not where we are. It's a good, beautiful thing. But they're not the greatest gifts from God. The gift of life in Christ, the gift of His Holy Spirit, the invitation of His family, those are the greatest gifts of God. That's the greatest gifts, and that's where we're willing to give up anything to be part of what God is doing. So you might be single because you're divorced. You might be single because you're gay or lesbian and you've chosen to remain celibate, to follow Jesus that way. You might be single because you haven't found the quote-unquote right person. You, you might be feel that God has called you to remain single so that you can serve God's kingdom without distraction. You may be single for a whole host of reasons. I don't know. The fact is, as a single person, you're in very good company. Very good company. Jesus was single, you understand. Did you know that? Did everyone know that? You read the Da Vinci Code? He didn't marry Mary. There's just nothing that shows up in history for that. I don't know what that guy was... Well, I know what he was thinking. How could I sell a bestseller? How could I sell the Jesus married Mary. Anyway, okay, side, that's a side note. He was a single guy. Jesus chose to remain single and he was the perfect human being. He was the perfect representation of who his father was without ever getting married, without ever having sexual intercourse, without ever ever participating in, in all those things. He was single. Paul, the great apostle Paul, the missionary Paul who planted all these churches, he might have been married at one point. It's, it's kind of obscure. But he certainly was single later on by the time he was really active in his mission. And he encourages singles to remain single if they can at all do it for the sake of the mission of Jesus that has been given. In fact, much of the New Testament takes all the stuff we've heard about families and about life and stuff we've even heard in Genesis and it applies it to the whole church, whether you're single or you're married, whether you're in slavery back then or whether you're working at a dead-end job or whether you're in, you know, the a great position of wealth or power, whatever ethnicity you're from, whatever your background, whatever you're clear about or not clear about, God calls us all to be part of his family. And so in Jesus, being fruitful and multiplying, which we have heard in Genesis, isn't really about biological reproduction anymore. It's about making disciples. I mean, that's how the church fills the earth and reproduces, right? We make disciples. Disciples, that's what Jesus gave us to do. The church doesn't actually, I mean, it does grow through babies, and we're super thrilled about babies, right? But ultimately, the church doesn't grow through babies. It grows through baptisms. That's how the church of Jesus grows. And we continue to obey the command to fill the earth by going out there into all the world and making more disciples. In Jesus, it's very astonishing in a culture that is so tight around family. That family loyalty, according to Jesus, is no longer about keeping it tight with the nuclear family. Mom, dad, 2.4 kids with a minivan. 
Jesus didn't see that. In fact, in the Gospels, when Jesus chose to talk about family, he'll step away from the biological family. He'll do super offensive things. I mean, we're talking mind-bogglingly offensive. Like the time that his mom and his brother show up outside the door of a time when he's teaching. And they want him to come out to them. Now, it could be true that at that point they thought he had gone off the deep end. But they want him to come out and talk to them. You know what, Jesus? He refuses to do so. They say, your mother, your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, you got, you're all terribly white and Western. We all know what, we think offending mom and dad is like the cool thing to do every once in a while when you're 19. This is in a culture where you do not do that. This is in a culture that is so about honoring the mom and the dad. Jesus says to this crowd, after being informed that mom and dad, not dad, mom and brothers are outside. You know what he says? Who are they? Who are my mother and my brother? Who are they? And then he says, these are my mother. These are my brothers and my sisters. Anyone who does the will of God is my mother, my brother, my sisters. Ouch. That is like ultra offensive. He gets worse, but we won't go there. Jesus, when he talks about family, he begins to redefine loyalty according to God's family. Now, he's not meaning to like diss on the biological family as though it's not important. But what he's saying is, it's secondary. It's not the most important. The family that's being created around the will of God, the family that's being created by the Holy Spirit, that is the most important thing that's happening. We're no longer defining family based on all the ways that we can define it, but rather, who the Spirit has been given to, who has been responsive to what God is doing in Christ. The Apostle Paul, I already alluded to it, he said that um, staying single, he felt, was actually the best way. And he's not, he doesn't say, he doesn't do what I would do, the tolerant Canadian, of saying, well, you know, it's one of the good ways. Kind of like, Paul's like, no, 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 no. You get married and you're distracted. You stay single and you can be 100% devoted to the mission. So man, Paul says, if you can stay single, buddy, you stay single because the mission's that important. You give it up for the kingdom, right? This is Paul. You don't want him pastoring your church. You just want him driving through, saying some nice things and moving on. Paul argued that the mission is more important than marriage. And it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. But you know what? Jesus himself said, when I asked a question about marriage and stuff, he said, guess what, guys? This thing is fading. The post-resurrection eternity that we're all moving toward, that isn't about marriage. It's not about who you married. In fact, we'll be, he, he says a little mysteriously, we'll be like the angels. We won't be getting the married business anymore. It's going to be some, we'll have bodies, we'll be real, but it'll be different. It'll be, it'll be a different kind of relationality, and I don't claim to know all that that means, but... It does send a signal. This is an ultimate business we're dealing with. Well, what does it all mean? Let's bring it together and then I'll finish. Wow, I'm late today. God's in a perfect relationship and he created us to emulate that in the way that we love one another. That's it in a nutshell. Who God is. He created us to reflect that. And so the challenge for us is to be that kind of people in our, in our relationships with, with each other, in our marriages, Yes in the way that we relate to our kids, in the way that we relate in community, in the way that we are the church, because at the end of the day, we are God's plan to show who he is to the world. 
that we are God's family plan. That the way that we love one another and relate to one another in, in the littlest ways, right to the largest expressions, are all designed to show the world that desperately needs His healing and His presence, who desperately needs to be brought into this relationship, to show them that there is a God who loves them. There is a God who cares. There is a God who has made you and understands the difficulty you've gone through and wants to restore you and heal you and bring you into a community. And we, as that community, to learn how to emulate that, learn how to love one another, learn how to overcome the boundaries that exist even between us so that we can truly care for us, for each other, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we're gay or straight or trans or intersexual, it doesn't matter how, how whatever struggles we have with, whatever, whatever depression you might struggle with or anxiety, whatever socioeconomic background, doesn't matter that we can be the people of God for each other. And in that, for each other, we emulate the God who is present here, who loves us, and wants us all to experience His goodness. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You who are this divine friendship, this love, this self-giving community, who have made us to reflect who You are, Lord Jesus, we just ask very simply that in us You would call us into community with each other and with You. Holy Spirit, pour life into us. Show us the steps forward from the smallest ways we speak to one another in our homes to the way we envision our community life together. We ask you to lead us. We ask you to help us reflect you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, go in the grace of the Lord today. We want to invite you to stay for Mother's Day coffee and cake. We have some special cake. We want to celebrate that. We're going to be doing the same thing for the second service folks. So if they show up here and they get cake now, guess what? They get cake twice. If I can ask uh, for the last few rows, if you don't mind removing the last couple rows and stacking them on the side to make more room, that'd be awesome. Go in grace, go in peace. Happy Wednesday.